Welcome to the Mindful Medicine Podcast. I, Juliana Zapatel, will be your host, bringing in experts to discuss a holistic approach to well being using Eastern philosophy and Western research. Join me today to welcome Kyle Kaplan, a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara studying Buddhism, as we talk about an introduction to Buddhist concepts. My name is Kyle Kaplan, and I am a PhD student currently at UC Santa Barbara with a focus on Buddhist studies and medieval Chinese Buddhism in particular. I, um, I kind of took a circuitous route to this avenue of study. I had started studying music technology and was involved in uh, Taiwanese techno scene for some time. Um, kind of had a bit of a quarter life crisis and Buddhist practice had been a part of my life since 2010. Started with Essen Gwenka Vipassana and that was kind of the Dharma gate uh, into just the world of Buddhism. And when that quarter life crisis hit, I uh, just turned towards Buddhism and, and got deeper into it. And um, a series of strange encounters and opportunities uh, led me to study uh, at Harvard Divinity School, where I got my Master of Divinity, and then worked for a year at Massachusetts General Hospital as a spiritual care provider and completed my clinical pastoral education there. I then uh, applied to PhD programs and spent some time at Great Vows and Monastery at the beginning of this year. And uh, now I'm here speaking with you, Juliana. Awesome. Well, I'm happy to have you here on the podcast today. Um, I'd like to ask you about this 2010 encounter with Buddhism. What drew you to this religion and this practice and there a specific experience yeah absolutely so i um yeah i had never really engaged formally with meditation prior to the retreat i uh yeah i was i was into yoga i practiced yoga pretty regularly um and also just kind of explored entheogens and and that whole aspect of of spirituality in the west um and i think i had like an idea in my mind of spirituality as being something transcendental and something that got me beyond this world in some way and uh sitting the retreat it just struck me that spirituality is not about getting beyond this world but being thoroughly within it and uh i think i saw also for the first time that it wasn't about these kind of peak experiences it was about the mundane that the pain in my legs was just as valid as a spiritual experience as any sort of you know vision or or you know whatever idea i was carrying around spirituality and it it also just showed me the importance of ethics uh the importance of of being good to myself and to others and spending that much time looking inwards for the first time you you really see all the baggage that you carry around and the way you know buddhism uses the language of karma but nowadays we talk about trauma and we talk about uh you know life's challenges and habits and i was just seeing how all of that was woven into my body 
and woven into my mind and that retreat was the first experience I had where it started to unravel and I felt much lighter and uh, and anchored because of it and it just redirected my orientation not only towards the spiritual path but just towards the world in general uh, so it was it was really powerful I mean in terms of a moment um, I would say like the first seven or eight days were just uh, agony uh, my hips were incredibly inflexible you know I had a, a, a huge like throne of cushions that I was using to like try and ease the pain and I don't know if you know anything about SN Goenka's style of Vipassana but it's like fairly uh, disciplinarian in a sense um, there's the aditon sitting three times a day which is a sitting of strong determination where you're not supposed to move for an hour and for someone who's never meditated before that just seemed like this monumental task and uh you know i just remember like beads of sweat dripping down my forehead and uh but you know once i stopped resisting and i stopped wanting to be somewhere else and i stopped wanting to live into some ideal of like the perfectly still meditator and just let go of that I, like i could feel the release in my body and i could feel the experience of pain transform and it really highlighted for me the role I was playing in terms of creating my reality. Yeah, I really appreciate your explanation of finding spirituality. I think a lot of people can feel scared off by this concept of it has to be something greater than yourself and beyond you and you have to leave your body and experience this bliss but I think that's really unattainable and I, I appreciate how you just value this being in your body and being present with what's here and the value of that is so strong so I, I really enjoyed listening to that story I'm glad. yeah and and to imagine having to sit down and meditate in perfect stance for an hour when never of meditating before I can't it's hard to imagine I even noticed this week um, trying to get back into meditation after taking a couple week break, it was so difficult to drop in. And there's so much judgment coming up and that inner critic being very loud. And so I, yeah, I applaud you for taking that step. Yeah. It's awesome. So for people who may be newer to learning about Buddhism, can you just give a brief background and history of how this religion came to be and started? You know, we don't, we don't know what it was really like during the Buddha's time. Uh, the oldest scriptures we have, which is the Pali Canon, were only transcribed in the first century BC, 400 years or so after the historical Buddha had first preached the Dharma. And uh, prior to that, it had been transmitted through uh, a council of elders who would gather and recite uh, the Buddhist teachings together. Uh, supposedly, the first gathering was after the Buddha died and disciples started to break from the Vinaya, the code of discipline for the monastics. And uh, Mahakasyapa, who was one of the Buddha's disciples, called together the, this council. And there was 500 of the Buddha's most renowned disciples. And um, 
at the start of each sutra, there's uh, this phrase, thus have I heard, uh, which was spoken by Ananda, supposedly. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant and his cousin, uh, just like his, his best bud. <laughs> um, and Ananda supposedly had this kind of photographic memory, so the mythology goes. And so the thus have I heard the I in that statement is Ananda recounting this experience of having heard the Buddha give this particular teaching. Uh, and so those are the earliest Buddhist scriptures. Um, and those are still the, the scriptures that are referenced by the Theravada lineage, which is the last remaining of 18 different Buddhist sects that had uh, been pejoratively labeled the Hinayana sects, uh, which means lesser vehicle, in contrast to the Mahayana, which is the greater vehicle. Mahayana uh, can kind of be seen as a hermeneutic jump uh, from the Pali Canon towards a, an extension of the ideas of the Pali Canon. Uh, so within the Pali Canon, there's these four fruits of liberation, uh, the highest one being the Arahant, who uh, has escaped the cycle of, of rebirth and is, is freed from craving, aversion, delusion, and uh, someone who will no longer be in this cycle of, of rebirth. Um, the Mahayana, they started to reflect on the teachings and they realized that instead of becoming an arhat and leaving this samsaric cycle, this cycle of rebirth, um, they themselves could become a Buddha. And so there was this orientation not towards liberation from samsara, but from a commitment to compassionately and endlessly gauge, engage in samsara with, with um, the aspiration to one day become a Buddha and propagate the Buddhist teachings. And from this vision, there's, there's this idea of just endless Buddhas, Buddha worlds, that, that there's all these different realms in which there's infinite numbers of Buddhas all preaching the Dharma. Um, and the Mahayana is based in a number of scriptures, um, one being the Lotus Sutra, uh, which relies heavily on parables. It's very fantastical. There's really rich imagery, uh, and as well as the Prajnaparamita, which is the, um, which is a book about emptiness, this, this idea that nothing has inherent self-existence. Um, and that's where you find the Diamond Sutra. That's where you find the Heart Sutra. Uh, and the, the scriptures have a much different flavor than the Pali Canon. Um, and from the Mahayana, you then have the Vajrayana extension, which is uh, the diamond vehicle. And that is uh, the form of Buddhism for Tibetan Buddhism. And that is supposedly the, the quickest path to Buddhahood, that instead of becoming a Buddha over the course of endless lifetimes, you become a Buddha in one lifetime through arduous practice. And it's a marriage between uh, yogic tantric practices and Mahayana Buddhist philosophy. Um, and so that's like a, a very broad overview of, of the kind of stream of, of Buddhism, starting from the historical Buddha through the development of the Mahayana, then lastly, the development of the Vajrayana. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. Um, so for some of our listeners who grew up in the West and 
are more familiar with this idea of a god from Christianity or Judaism, how would you explain to them this notion of becoming a Buddha? Because in these religions, you don't become a god. You more so worship one. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, there's different interpretations of what constitutes, quote unquote, a Buddha. Um, some would say that you don't... you don't become a Buddha because you already are a Buddha, that there's the capacity for each and every one of us to be a Buddha. And so inherently, there's some aspect of Buddha nature that is already within us. And so it's not so much about becoming, but remembering. Um, and, you know, there's, there's many perspectives on what constitutes a Buddha. Some might say that Buddha has, you know, the six Siddhi, the the magical powers, uh, and there's an omniscience and the ability to perceive the karma of all sentient beings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's also, I think, a a way of understanding what constitutes a Buddha that that maybe feels much bit more accessible to the kind of everyday conventional reality that we engage with, and that's just one who knows, one who is aware one who is able to see the world and reality for what it is, one who's able to see things from multiple perspectives. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's hard to say, you know, what it means to be a Buddha or to become a Buddha or to remember that you're a Buddha. Uh, I think that the best way to maybe engage with that idea is just holding it as a question and and seeing where it leads you experientially can you expand on this idea of um, becoming aware and what that can mean to somebody mm. yeah i mean i think we all have kind of moments of insight throughout our life and even throughout our day uh we have times when we all of a sudden get struck by seeing something differently by uh, recognizing some sort of quality to our lives and the world around us that we, we hadn't recognized before. And I think in some ways that awareness is, is just that simple recognition of, of what's there. And yeah, awareness is a very broad topic. I think, you know, there's also this aspect of awareness being all-inclusive of being centerless of being without edges uh, of being entirely receptive to the world um, and so yeah I think that just paying attention to the qualities of awareness also can teach us a lot of, of how to of just how to be in this world and, and to not hold on to things but let phenomena arise let them appear let them pass away be with the inherent and pervasive spaciousness of the mind. So this concept of becoming aware leads me into this idea of suffering because suffering can often lead to one's awareness, right? So could you kind of cover the meaning of suffering within a Buddhist context and how that can apply to becoming aware? Hmm. Yeah, so... You know, I think uh, if we look at the word suffering within the Pali Canon, it's dukkha, which has this, this wide spectrum of meanings. Uh, and it can be the slightest 
subconscious irritation, just the slightest bit of discomfort and unease that maybe is even existing below the threshold of our conscious experience to the the major sufferings of life, birth, old age, sickness, death, these painful experiences that all of us will go through just by the fact that we're here and that we're in this human form on, on this particular planet in this particular realm um and yeah i think suffering is a really fruitful place for inquiry because it's you know buddhism has these the talakana the the three aspects uh three marks of existence and um the one of these is dukkha is suffering that suffering is inherent to being a conditioned entity that because the conditions which constitute who and what we are are in this state of impermanence that as long as we hold on to one of our conditions or any of our conditions then given the impermanent nature of that condition we are creating suffering for ourselves um there's i forget who it was it was someone from dhamma seed who i was listening to and they described uh, the talakana, which is um, anicca, dukkha, natta, which is impermanence, suffering, and non-self, they described it as everything is impermanent, everything is imperfect, and everything is impersonal. And um, I think I really like that definition of dukkha as imperfection. Um, and I think one of the, I think, most powerful insights that buddhism is able to offer us is the sense that suffering itself is a dharma gate that suffering can lead us to something beyond our suffering and lead us to deeper truths about our existence in this world and i think once we we take a different perspective on suffering we can see how it it can transform and transmute and become wisdom and become compassion become tenderness uh, and so I think Buddhism offers this, this path towards liberation of suffering through suffering itself. You go through the suffering in order to let it transform you and open you. Um, and yeah, I mean, the role of awareness, I'm not sure the role of awareness in that process. I, I think awareness is always there. There's never, there's never a space where awareness is missing any sort of experience we have is is carried in the centerless all-pervasive space of awareness that forms the basic substrate of our experience and so awareness i yeah i'm i'm still working through the relationship between suffering and awareness do you think you could explain awareness as the one beneath the suffering the one that is not necessarily experiencing it, but instead watching it and being understanding towards it. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, Ajahn Chah, one of his pointers for meditation is uh, be the one who knows. And so I think uh, whenever there's an experience of suffering, we have this capacity to step back and capacity to to change our framing of the suffering and 
you know, it's, I, I mean, I'm thinking about that first Vipassana retreat I did 12 years ago where uh, all the misery I was feeling and the pain in my legs and, and just that moment of, of letting go of resistance and like finding space even in this, um, this state of, of pretty extreme discomfort and distress and there was just a kind of inward shift um yeah just stepping back and and noticing that there is space between the experience of discomfort the experience of suffering and awareness itself that there's some some distance there that one can find when they can kind of move back and and see things in a different light see discomfort in the body as sensation as particles moving as the elements shifting energy changing rather than labeling it as pain or labeling it as discomfort there's a way that it can be seen from this this stance that has no value placed on it um and that I think is, is a space of really beautiful liberation, but I think there's also a danger there too. You know, I think that there's this question of spiritual bypassing that also gets raised with, uh, with that backwards step because sometimes we do need to feel suffering fully and we need to let it move through us and give it, give it the space to breathe and to express itself and if we're always kind of stepping back and, and disassociating in some way, then the suffering doesn't really have a chance to, to find its way through us in the way that it needs. So I think it's, it's important to be careful not to fall into the trap of spiritual bypassing when we encounter suffering. There can be a kind of Pollyannish view of suffering where you know, everything is a Dharma gate. And so my suffering's okay. Everything's a blessing. And yeah, everything's okay. It's okay. It's fine. You know, and like, uh, <laughs> but it's not. And there's a somatic knowledge that it, that hurts. And there's a grief that's real that needs to be held and cared for compassionately. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of backwards step might fall under the wing of wisdom within buddhism the ability to see things from this kind of broader ultimate perspective it's just energy moving and permanence happening uh, but there's also the very human element of compassion and tenderness and kindness that um, suffering also calls for so yeah i think that we just need to be careful to not to not numb out through our spiritual practice but to make sure that the spiritual practice is making us softer and kinder towards ourselves and the world. Yeah, that reminds me of um, when I'm teaching specifically a yin class, I try to remind the students to get curious about the discomfort in their body and sit with that sensation instead of trying to run from it or straight to labeling it as negative or bad. And often this is very hard for people in our culture because they're used to alleviating pain right away. You know, a culture that's very big on medication and running away from this discomfort. So how would you kind of open someone's mind 
to this idea of being okay with the suffering and experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, I would I would offer that as a possibility for them. I also think uh, you know people people are always in different places, and you know I think about parable of the sower, and uh, you know like you know Jesus says, for those who have ears, let them hear. Uh, so not everyone has ears on all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes we throw seeds and it's on rocky soil or it's on dry soil or it sprouts and then it dies. So there's there's all kinds of conditions. And um, if the seed meets the right conditions, then it, it can find its way deep into the earth and grow into a giant, sturdy, uh, sturdy tree that can provide us with shelter. But that's not always the case. And so I think it's important to just recognize where people are at, too. I don't want anyone to feel bad for suffering. Like, they already feel bad as it is. So it's like, oh, you're not suffering right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, would, I would invite that possibility into their experience. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's no silver bullet for changing a person's experience of suffering. And oftentimes just meeting them where they're at tends to be the most effective way of creating connection and of um, actively expressing compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I appreciate that response. Um, so I, I wanted to get your opinion on, I read this book, the trauma of everyday life by Mark Epstein. And he described suffering almost as, everything and everything is trauma in a sense he used trauma and suffering simultaneously um and he looked at it from this perspective i don't have you heard of the internal family systems model mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah so from this perspective of we have different parts that are protecting us right. due to this trauma or suffering and we have to go in and break down those parts to get to the the core and the compassion underneath that mm -hmm. so this can be a frightening process for people i yeah. know when i was first introduced to it it was like wow i have so many things to uncover and to so many conditions to let go of um so what would you say coming from a buddhist perspective to somebody who's feeling that way and, and is interested in that healing work, but is scared. Yeah, it's scary. It mm -hmm. is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love inter internal family systems. We use that a lot in uh, clinical pastoral education. Um, yeah, my supervisor, Shulamit Eisen, uh, Rabbi Shulamit Eisen was yeah, she was a big proponent of it as a model for our, our inner world. And uh, it is painful, you know, to to excavate those exiles and to invite them back in. So parts of you that you want to shed there, they've been smothered and repressed for a reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and so bringing them back in and trying to integrate these shadow sides of ourselves is an arduous process. And I don't think I, th I think everyone could benefit from it. I don't know if everyone's ready for it. Uh, and I don't know exactly when it ever ends. You know, <laughs> I yeah. still, I'm still doing work. Like, yeah, it, it takes time and it takes dedication. 
and in some ways it's easier just to be like okay i'm supposed to do this i'm supposed to do that and just kind of like follow one's prescribed path and uh and not have to kind of do that inner work but ultimately i feel like it's absolutely worth it because life becomes so much lighter and uh the heart becomes a lot freer and yeah life life gets imbued with a, a kind of quiet joy once once those burdens are, are lifted even a little bit you know just to the degree that they're lifted the heart is that much lighter and so i think that if someone's if someone's afraid to do that kind of work i completely understand i think that then it's on others who have done the work to be living embodiments of what it means to do that work and to show it and share it with the world so that others become inspired and others can tap into their own potential and others feel drawn towards um getting into the muck and you know working through their trauma working through their suffering working through their conditioning their their habits of body and of mind and uh yeah so i think it's there's a responsibility for those who are engaged with the work to like really live into it and it's tough because then like there's also you know the whole cliche of just like smugness within the spiritual community that's like kind of insufferable and <laughs> that could like drive people away too so i don't know yeah i really don't know you know i think it's all uh, it's all complicated and it's all situational so yeah i don't know those are my thoughts <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you um yeah, and I, I kind of want to bring it back to what we were saying in the beginning of being scared off by spirituality in a way because of all these expectations surrounding it. Um, and this kind of brings me to the idea of enlightenment. And I think a lot of people tend to go in to a meditation practice or to this internal family systems model with this idea that they'll reach some new level of enlightenment or of shedding of letting go and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on this concept and how it's used in the West and maybe misinterpreted in some ways hmm. yeah I mean I, I I don't claim any sort of enlightenment I so I can't like speak authoritatively you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so but you know it is a thing like it's part of Buddhist circles and Buddhist culture uh, there's an aspect of it, you know, particularly within monastic systems. Part of it can be kind of like bureaucratic in some way, you know, like Dharma transmission is to ensure that the institution is preserved and the health of the, the Sangha, of the community is maintained by proper guidance. But like also, you know, I've, I've met teachers and they, they are people who are, who are different. They're people who have something's changed, something's shifted. And there's a like a, an incredible presence that they're able to carry, and uh, there's an incredible adaptability and flexibility of the mind, uh, and a sensitivity that is kind of always there and never really tires. And I feel like they can help offer us just inspiration of like, oh, the this is the fruit of the path, uh, and they they can show us what it means you know I don't, like it's it's hard to, to be like okay 
this is enlightenment you know in in like theravada buddhism they have the 10 fetters right and so for each of the the four stages of enlightenment different fetters get shed off and uh so there's some sort of like systematic understanding but i don't know i think that humans are just so unique and individual and we all have our own stories and our own trauma and so i i'm reluctant to like systematize something as uh as nebulous and and abstract as a notion of enlightenment um yeah and i think in this sense of like also you know people having some sort of goal or some sort of aim with their practice like from my perspective and you know my perspective is limited and i've i've been practicing a little bit over a decade but not that long so like i don't know where it goes but like something that feels true to me right now is that like you don't you don't ever really arrive like there's there's like always something deeper and it's 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 not about a goal it's it's not like you somehow get to some space and like all of a sudden everything in your life aligns and everything's integrated and everything is rosy for the rest of your days like there's always some imperfection there's always that dukkha that there's always the fly in the ointment and um we're just practicing how to deal with that fly and how to how to relate to imperfection relate to our suffering and some have gotten pretty good at it but i don't know if it ever really ends yeah what you said really reminded me somebody was telling me about their meditation experience and how there was a lot of noise and distraction around them and they went to this place of frustration of why can't i get into this blissful state and i kind of responded with instead of the goal of reaching some state the goal is to just be present with what is and i think you put that really well um, to practice that in your meditation as realizing there's always going to be some form of dukkha surrounding you whether mm -hmm. it's the noise or your thoughts and allowing that to be is really when you reach that state of bliss in a way yes i mean you reach it and then you don't yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's yeah like there might be moments of of relief um but it's really just being with exactly what is and and like that as soon as we like think that it's just like it's we're there and and this is it like then it that's when it recedes away from us and mm -hmm. so it's just being with you know be with the discomfort be with the noise be with the dukkha uh, don't turn away from it bring it in let it let it have its space it it deserves to be here too it's here for a reason just as much as we are and you know i think like coming back to the idea of awareness and suffering like this i think is one of the the really beautiful attributes of awareness that it it, it doesn't exclude anything and i think like using awareness as a kind of as a metaphor we can see like that that's the practice is that like nothing is excluded it's all here and there's there's space for all of it and uh letting go of of whatever resistance whatever ideal whatever goal whatever concept we're we're clinging on to and just and just being intimate with this moment like that that to me feels like like the life of the practice yeah definitely 
That leads me into if you could further explain the role of suffering in this process of enlightenment based on different Buddhist lineages. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in the the foundational teachings of Buddhism within the Pali Canon and Theravada Buddhism, but extending throughout all the lineages, is the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, it's given greater or lesser importance depending on the lineage that you're engaging with. But um, really, Buddhism begins with suffering. Uh, and it ends with liberation. And so suffering is is the the gateway into liberation it might be the very first step of a very long and uh largely unpleasant journey (laughs) unpleasant at the beginning i feel like like meditation and retreats like they can feel pretty miserable at the beginning but then once they get good they get really good (laughs) and (laughs) then it becomes the practice shifts into one of of really kind of like savoring the practice and having a deep love for the practice um but yeah i mean suffering suffering is real it's here it's you're recognizing that that this world is imperfect and you know if, if buddhism is to be like quote unquote the one that knows it's like we need to know that like suffering is is here and that that's like a very concrete truth to begin with that this world isn't perfect um and yeah, I think just recognizing that and, and not turning away from it. It's our it's our instinct to to want to either problem solve or to repress. And um, Buddhism tells us to to just let go, let go of turning away, let go of trying to fix, let the the conditions unfold as they are and receive them as they are. And uh, and suffering's a great place to do that because it's so damn hard to receive it as it is. Um, it's easy to receive chocolate or like uh, <laughs> you know or like a good hug, right? Like I could receive that all day, but yeah, to receive suffering really takes some some strength. And uh, but ultimately, it's also a great teacher. Uh, it teaches us how to be with exactly what is. Um, so I don't know. I think that did that answer part of your question? I'm yeah, not sure. Okay. No, it definitely did. Yeah, it's funny how you brought up the chocolate and the hug because mm. I remember discussing that even those can be considered suffering because mm-hmm. at some point they leave and then you miss what was, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, Buddhaghosa, right? Path of purification, Vasudhimaga, you know, talks about these three forms of suffering. Uh, we were talking about this the other day, and I don't know. I, I don't know if I got it right because you also sent me another list that had like uh, a third kind of another kind of suffering. Yes, yes. yes. Um, there was. Yeah, maybe if you want to pull that up. But as I remember it, and uh, you can correct me, but uh, there's dukkha dukkha, which is like suffering as we think of it, uh, and then there's sukha dukkha, which is yeah the suffering of pleasure in the sense that once the pleasure leaves then they're suffering. So we're conditioning our future suffering through our present pleasure. And then the Sankara Dukkha, which is of uh, the suffering of just being a, a conditioned entity. And the fact that these conditions are impermanent means that suffering is inevitable. Yeah. Not Viparanama. I've, mm. I've heard of Sukha Dukkha, so I'm, I'm mm. not sure if that's just another 
Right. Yeah, Viparanama Dukkha. Right. Yeah. The suffering of change. Interesting. I mean, that sounds yeah. like Sankara Dukkha, the suffering of existence. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. a. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that familiar with all of the kind of esoteric, like Theravadan exegetical work from the fifth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I was. That would be very cool. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I, I don't. I don't know how much I kind of buy into that in some sense. You know, and I think we like Buddhism's here and there's all these these ideas and, and concepts to wrestle with. Um, but like in terms of sukha dukkha, like everything we experience as pleasure is ultimately going to lead to pain. I don't know. Like, like there's also healthy relationships. Like I see people who are like madly in love, you know, and, and even if one of them passes, you know, and, and leaves this world and like, there's, there's grief there and there's suffering, but like, you ask the person, like, was it worth it? And they would say, of course. Like, of course it was worth it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, and so I think, I don't know. And maybe this is just because I'm laity, because I'm I'm not a monastic. I Like, I think that there's still value in, in trying to find goodness and joy in this world and not turning away from everything that, that sukha, everything that can bring us pleasure and can bring us, like, a sense of fulfillment because... Um, yeah, this, we don't know what this world is. We don't know how long we're here for. And I think that there's value in, in really like tasting this world and being in it. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm clearly part of the Mahayana path because <laughs> I'm not really trying to get out of samsara. I'm just trying to make samsara into the pure land, make samsara mm-hmm. into a place of compassion. Um, and I think that requires us embracing our humanity to some degree, uh, and so I'm not entirely convinced by Sukaduka. The other two, those make sense. But Sukaduka seems questionable to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have to agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, those are the questions I had for you. But mm. if there's anything you still feel like sharing or that wasn't said, mm. feel free to add on. Uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing really at the moment. I just had... A really nice time speaking with you, Juliana. Mm-hmm. It was a good conversation. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your questions and taking the time to talk and connect. Yeah, thank you for joining me. Yeah.